attention, please. I'm Eleanor Hamilton, and if you live somewhere near London or Birmingham, I may have accompanied you to work, even though you didn't invite me along. It's my voice that delivers tube announcements on the underground. There is a good service operating on all London underground lines. And you can hear me on Midland Metro trams too. This tram terminates at Wolverhampton St George's. Wherever you hear me on the transport network, my husband, Phil Sayer, is usually not far away either. This is a platform alteration. He's the voice of all kinds of announcements, but his finest hour was probably when he got this gig. Mind the gap. We've worked together for almost 20 years, but unlike most happily married couples, we don't see each other anymore. In 2016, Phil passed away, leaving me and our 10-year-old twin boys minding a very big gap. It's lovely that we're still united in voice across the UK, but our story made me realise that everyone who does this kind of job is a real person, even though the sentences we speak are often rearranged by a computer without us knowing it. But actually, we all have a story. We're all real people who talk to you every day, but most people only talk back to us when we get information wrong or send you the wrong way down a motorway. So I've decided to share our Tales from the Tannoy. In this episode, I'm going to talk to a voice that everyone knows because his TV catchphrase delighted a generation of kids. Kellogg's Frosties, they're great! But while Tony the Tiger made life seem as easy to swallow as a bowl of Frosties, the man who gave him his voice had plenty of struggles of his own. Tom Clark Hill, tell me how you came to be the voice of everyone's favourite Tiger King. Well, the original Tony the Tiger was a guy named Thurl Ravenscroft. Okay. How's that for a name, man? That's amazing. I think he had the gig almost 40 years. Wow. And so as a kid, I had his voice in my head. And this cattle call for a new Tony the Tiger came up after he passed away. The first time I went, there must have been 30, 40 guys doing, walking up and down the hall going, they're great, they're great, they're great, they're great. You know, but I always remembered Tony uh, from a child, Kellogg's Frosties, they're great. <laughs> so, and, and then I wrote like a little rap. My name is Tony, the number one cat. I forget what it was. It was really cheesy. And so there's about six guys on the other side of the glass. And when I went into that, you know, two or three of them were just rolling their eyes like this guy's groveling for this gig, you uh-huh. know. But then I got the call back. But the second time I went back, there was 10 guys. Right. And it was the same sort of dance. And then uh, two weeks later, there was five guys. Mm. And I was supposed to go first. But one guy says, hey, man, he goes, you you stick around. You're going to go last. And I thought, is that good or bad? I don't know. Yeah. And so they told all the other guys to leave. And then they said, "Uh, let's hear you. And and then I did it. And they said, you got the gig. And I always remember it as being uh, 1999 Mm -hmm. because... um, my youngest son uh, was born in 99 or 98. Right. Yeah, 98. So he was in the push chair when, when I got the call that I finally got the gig. Wow. Did you knock him and over? And now he's, uh, he's 20 <laughs> years old and six foot eight. Wow. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Because you have four kids, don't you? Yeah, I've got four kids. I had We had boy, boy, girl, boy. Wow. And did you find that they were all over this at school? Did they love it? Did they love the fact that their dad was Tony the Tiger or was it just boring to them? They liked it at first. And then after a while, my two older sons would say, Dad, don't tell them. Don't tell them. You know, when they start school, you know, because they'd have kids. Oh, your dad's great. <laughs> like, yeah. So tell me about your wife. Well, my, my first wife was named Jacqueline Clark. And I was working as a musician on a cruise ship out of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And all the uh, musicians were Americans, Californians mostly. Right. And all the casino girls were from the UK. And my line is, she saw me across a crowded staff dining room and thought, hmm, green card. (laughs) 
<laughs> <laughs> but it was more than that, you know. Of course. And she was awesome. Um, and we got, uh, we worked on the ship together for a while. And then we got off. Then we got married. Then we went back on the ship for a while. Mm-hmm. And then we got off and lived in Los Angeles. We had Taylor. Then four years later, had Eric. So I was living in L.A. And my whole thing about living in, in Los Angeles was to hit the big time, you know. Mm. But as it turned out, I was in one of the top big bands as a bass player. I was with a band called Les Brown and the Band of Renown. Right. We did like all the Bob Hope TV shows. And I got to do shows with like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Tony Bennett and a whole bunch of people, you know, Dolly Parton, Luther Vandross, all that stuff. And so I was making decent money as a bass player mm-hmm. doing doing studio work, but I wasn't doing much comedy and I wasn't doing much voiceovers. Mm-hmm. And then I took a, a class with a woman named Ginny Tyler who used to be on staff at Hanna-Barbera. Right. And she started using me to dub cartoons. And um, it was trial by fire because everybody thinks, oh, I'd love to do a cartoon. But this was like revoicing Japanese or Russian cartoons. Yeah. Which was like, you know, the Japanese thing would say the line is, watch out, he's over there. The Japanese mouth movement would be, like you say, watch out, he's over there, man. You know, and the Russians would be the exact opposite, like, vorsky, morsky, vichky, vorsky. You know, like, hey, man, watch out, he's over there, dude. You know, sort of thing. And you had to get it off the paper and onto the, you know, get those lip movements down. Yeah. And I think it was after the Rodney King trial, LA just got crazy. And I had friends like, you know, these, these peaceful, uh, fun loving musicians carrying guns to work. Mm. I just had this epiphany one night, I think uh, down at the local high school, a couple of kids got in the fight and the next day one came back, back with his dad's nine millimeter and started waving it around. And I thought, you know, I've got such a smart mouse and I've been such a sarcastic kid all my life. And I've, I've been in fights and, you know, just because of the stuff that I say, but if you get in the fight with a, with a gang member or mm-hmm. something like that, it's all over, yeah, you know? Cool. And I thought I'm, I'm, why am I in Los Angeles? You know, it's like I'm playing music, but it seems like the more I need, you know, just to keep above water with, with our income and stuff. And I said, so Jackie one day, I said, you know, we ought to go to your country, man. It's safer there. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know. I always wanted to come here all my life, you know? Yeah. And, and then, uh, but she uh, succumbed to it and, uh, we came over here in 93 and really never looked back, man. It was, yeah. it was beautiful. And, um, and I started uh, working at the Ronnie Scott's in Birmingham. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the Ronnie Scott's in Birmingham, there was a receptionist, um, D. Her name was D, or short for Diane or something like that. Yeah. And I had to go try to get permanent residency sticker in my passport. And she worked for immigration as well down near the airport. Oh, wow. And she sees me in this big, long line, you know, with, you know, about 20 people in front of me. And she gives me this, like, real stern look and says, excuse me, come over here. You know, like, <laughs> I'm in trouble or something like that. And she fast tracks me and stamps this thing in my book. So it's, like, Fantastic. amazing. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know what your religious beliefs or if you think there's a higher power or like universal wonderful things happening you know but I think the fact that when I moved over here it wasn't about my career it was about creating a better life for my kids yeah and then all of a sudden my career just opened up you know instead of just being another guy with an, uh, an American accent playing the bass mm-hmm. and trying to do voiceovers and acting in LA over here I kind of became a little more exotic yeah and the same thing with agents too is Jackie had a an aunt that worked for Central Television Right. And she hooked me up with my first voiceover agent and my first acting agent. And then I started I started working right away, man. And your kids settled in okay with it? How old were they when they came over? The oldest was four and the youngest was four months. Right. And then um, probably, so that was 93. And about 95, I started getting the Taylor some work as a 
kid with an American accent, you know, from home. Right. Yep. We took him down to a few uh, ADR dubbing sessions down in, in Soho as well. And he took to right. it like a duck to water, man. That was Brilliant. really yeah. good. And I think the younger they are and, and and they've seen you do it for years and years and they just kind of just get it. Mine were quite popular because they had Bolton accents. Yeah. And of course, that's quite a, a nice accent and quite popular now to have regional accents on uh, on commercials and stuff. And I think that if they know nothing else, it's when they get a bit older, they become a little bit um, self-conscious and they don't want to do it anymore. But Taylor, uh, he kept his American accent. It, it got to a, a thing. I, I remember when he was eight or nine, he started to sound a little more Worcestershire. Yeah. And then <laughs> that's, that's my, I don't know, Herefordshire sort of a thing or like <laughs> some sort of a weird twang. I think he was 12 or 13 and some kids at school have been calling him a yank and worse. Right. And, uh, and he says, he goes, that's it. He goes, man, he goes, I'm not going to talk like this anymore. But he was already mixed up. He'd say, oh, man, I dropped my banana, you know, or, uh, <laughs> hey, dude, you want some Walter? You know, like he was all he was all over the shop. But but he says, OK, I'm not going to do that anymore. I said, oh, that's too bad, man, because uh, there's this, this job here. It pays 60 quid, yeah. you know, for his 30, 30 second uh, commercial. And he went. I'm American. <laughs> so he, good lad. Yeah, so he just stuck with it. And he's and he's really good. I mean, he kind of fit in with any group of people, you know. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like a like a tourist American, you know. Like. So you moved back to the UK and you had two more children? Yeah. Um, my daughter's 22 now. Uh-huh. So uh, Taylor's 30, uh, Eric's 26, and then... Uh, Four years later, we had we had Aaliyah, who's twenty two, and then two years after that, Quentin. Right. So they're quite big yeah. gaps, actually. When you know. Yeah. Gosh, Jacqueline must have been exhausted. The the kids came first with her, you know. Yeah. And then later on with me, you know. I, I think I've got to admit, you know, she always wanted a large family, and you know, it's 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 a tough one, man. You probably know saw the same thing happen is when we had all those years and years of living together where we didn't have any children to think about. Mm. When I was in the states, when we stood, when we had. Taylor, you know, I'd go on a six-week tour every summer yeah. with a big band, and every once in a while, Jackie would give me a jab. Oh, look who's coming through the door. It's Uncle Dad. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, oh, here comes Good Cop, you know, that sort of thing, you know, so. Well, I mean, it must have must have worked it out because uh, you went on to have three more children, so, uh, so I guess. Yeah, we were, together, <laughs> we were together for over 28 Fantastic. years. So um, she became ill when the kids were relatively young didn't she or, or yeah the youngest was six wow. okay and uh so it was a five-year battle with cancer and she had a um an untreatable form of cancer called gist which are growths in the stomach lining and um for a long time she thought she had uh you know ulcers or this or that you know it was always like pain in her in her throat and upper stomach area you know when we she got diagnosed it was like um can't believe it, man. Mm. We, you know, we went to this hospital and then they did like an ultrasound, that, which had always been for a baby. You see how a baby's doing. And mm. they, oh, there's one. Oh, there's another one. There's, yeah. So there's 12 of these things oh, in her stomach. So there was never a chance of like, oh, we're going to cut it out and see what happens, you know. Mm. And and also uh, radiotherapy never worked on that form as, and neither did um, chemo. The only thing that kind of slowed the process was some experimental pills for other things that they, they found kind of shrunk tumors and stuff. Mm. And, and we had two years of, um, we were hopeful yeah. that th- this thing might stop it or this thing might stop it. And then the, the last three years were just, you know, mostly negative. Mm. You know, it just kept getting worse and the physical symptoms were worse. Yeah. I understand. Uh, and, uh, she was a trooper, man. Mm-hmm. She was a trooper. She she came from really tough stock, you know. And um, you know, nobody wants to play God 
mom doesn't feel good, but she's going to get better, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. to the younger two. Yeah. And then I think the other, the older two, at, at, at a certain point, you know, we mm-hmm. told them this is this is uh, cancer. And yeah. but when she started uh, some of this experimental drug uh, that was shrinking the tumors, you know, uh, the oncologist, she says to him, she goes, so how long have these worked for people? And instead of saying, man, we've had people go five years, he said, no one's ever made it past five years. Wow. And that day, you know, she goes, that guy's just given me my death sentence. Mm. And I said, well, yeah, if you choose to believe him, you know, mm. but he doesn't know. We, and we tried a lot of other things, too. We did a thing called Gerson therapy, right. which if, if you check up on that online um, Dr. Gerson was pretty amazing, and and it was alternative, you know, like blasting enzymes into your system with uh, eight or ten juices a day, Mm. either carrot, apple, spinach, and all this other stuff, and then also flushing out your system in a specific way. He had a clinic in uh, Mexico. Uh Uh-huh. And at one point we were we were considering sending her there, you know. Mm. It's just like a lot of people too. Anything, if, you know, you? they've been thrown on the dust heap in the UK or in the United States, and mm. they go to China, yep. and then ten years later they're alive. Yeah. You know, through um, acupressure, acupuncture, and Chinese herbs. Mm. You know, so who knows? You know, and what, you'll try what the anything, deal is. won't you? Yeah. You know? Sure. And until they're actually dead, you just keep going and keep going yep. and keep going. I've never really. Um, had a uh, concrete sort of a, a religious belief, mm. you know, but I, I agree with with all religions about, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within or there's some sort of a universal power mm. or something like that. And and uh, from my crazy past, I had been saved too many times to not think that I've got angels walking after me or something like that, you know. Yeah. But I, I leave that to everybody to find a power of their own understanding sort of a thing. you of know. And I've always been kind of a doubting Thomas, you know, about, you know, like miracles and and this and that, you know. Yeah. But when Jackie actually died, it was a bank holiday weekend. Mm. And on the Friday, my neighbor across the road had lost his wife about six months before. And we were talking outside and he was saying, yeah, when when she was dying, you know, then the nurse was talking to me. And I said, I don't see why she just keeps hanging on. Mm. And the nurse looked at him and, and she said, have you told her it's OK to go? Mm. And he goes, and then I went and I told her it was OK to yeah. go. And then she went. Mm. And so I'd already said that to Jackie. I already said, you know, I don't want to see you hurting anymore. The kids are going to be all right. Um, we got it covered. Mm. We're going to miss you, but I don't want you to hang around. And um, but I hadn't had the kids do that. And so I went and individually, I told each one of them that that same thing. that I told you about the neighbor and about me telling her. And I said, you don't have to if you don't want to. But if you want to let her go and, have you know, then go up there. And each kid on that Friday night went upstairs and they spent some really quality time with her where she was still coherent. And um, and it was beautiful. And um, that was the day that my youngest, who was 11, mm. um, you know, I just had to say, you know, where we were saying that mom would get better and she's just sick. And I said, she's not going to get better. Mm. And I, he goes, well, what could happen? I said, what do you think? And she could die. And I went, yeah. And then I told him that. And he went up and did the same thing. They all went up and told her it was okay to go. Yeah. And then on the Saturday, that evening in bed, you know, I could feel her like just shutting down. Mm. And then about 2.30 on, on Sunday afternoon... 
we're in the room and we're playing music and 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 just kind of stroking her head and whatever like that and and I got up and started walking around and my sister-in-law goes she's looking for you she's looking for you mm-hmm. and I go over there and her eyes are like wide open wow. and it's like somebody looking down the wrong end of a telescope right it was amazing it was like this uh distant ancient sort of a look mm. and what I took from that was it's been great hanging out with you but I got to go yeah and then in a flash I felt her go up. I felt her spirit go up and her body went down. It was drastic. It just totally deflated like boom. It was it was amazing. Wow. And it freaked me out, you know. Of course. And then later on, um somebody said what a gift, you yeah. know? Because I'll never ever doubt that we're not spiritual beings having a physical experience. No. It was magic. Uh-huh. It was magic, you know. The other thing about the organizing the funeral on the Friday Jackie had, wouldn't admit to anybody that she was dying. You know, she wouldn't even say it. And then some guy came around from St. Richard's Hospice and she was like, who is this guy? Yeah. Get him out of here, sort of a thing. And then our doctor came, our GP, who was a lady mm-hmm. uh, named Dr. Wilkie. And, and she just got down and Jackie's eye level and said, Jackie, you know what's happening, don't you? She mm-hmm. goes, yeah, I'm dying. And she goes, and is there anything you want to talk about? And I said, we talked about cremation, you know, and you... And she went, do you want cremation or burial? You know, just to double check. And she went, she said cremation. And I said, and do you want to be buried? Uh, do you want us to spread your ashes on the beach or the Malverns? Mm. And she went, the Malverns. Mm. And we talked about that before, too. And so um, three days after she's passed away, I'm at the funeral director's. And I go in there and this guy gives me this menu you know, to pick of your caskets and it falls open yeah. on page 11 and they're all named after areas and page 11. And I guess the name of the, the casket is called the Malvern. <laughs> and listen, wow. listen to this. There's like a gray, dismal, rainy day. And this beam of sun comes through the friggin' window, man. Wow. I swear to God, as soon as this, this page opens up and this beam of sun comes through the window and I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Hi, darling. All right. <laughs> You're here. There we go. Yeah. It is amazing, isn't it? And I think if you open your heart to these things, who knows whether they're really there or not. But yeah. I've had similar things from Phil and I just think it doesn't matter if he's actually not there. I like to think he is. Yeah. And 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 I think that that must be really comforting to you as well that you know if if they can send me a message they will. Yep. Um and how wonderful to to have that comfort. Mm. So presumably she had the Malvern and uh, Yep, she got the Malvern. Oh good. And then we had a, a service at the Worcester Crematorium mm. and all kinds of people showed up, man. Oh. Whole you know all I did was just I told a few close friends and I said and I put it on Facebook. Mm. And in the play, there was standing room only is packed out. Wonderful. And then afterwards we had a reception and played music and, and um, it was beautiful. So how did your kids cope? They all had their own little journey, you know, mm. and the strongest and the most supporting, of course, was not of course, but was was my oldest was Taylor. Yeah. And he was really good, you know, and he stepped in and, and helped drive the kids to school afterwards and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I don't know if he totally processed it and let it go. I don't no. know that. The 18-year-old was already a little bit off the rails before it happened. Mm. And then he changed from kind of a um, an emo sort of a guy, you know, mm. playing music with his skinnies, skinny trousers and his <laughs> hair down to his eyebrows. You've got to have he, one like he, that. <laughs> he started wearing trackies and shaving his head and running with some tough kids. And becoming an aggressor. Right. 
And I later found out, you know, that, that somebody beat him up. A few guys had beat him up, and then he and he became one of them for a while. Yeah. And when Jackie died, he he went off the rails and and um, got in a lot of fights and, and a lot of anger and and stuff, mm. you know. But it's all fueled by anger, isn't it? You know, it, it went for a while too. Eighteen, probably till about twenty-two. Like he had a four-year run of being. Uh, he had to go out and go through the wilderness. Mm. And I had a similar. Uh, I didn't have. Uh, exactly the same story, but that period of time in my life, I'm in recovery. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I just celebrated 40 years clean and sober last wow. on April 7th. Well done, you. But um, I got sober when I was 25. Right. But the the years 18 to 22, 23. Well, actually, 18 to 25. <laughs> you know, were insane. Insane. You know, I was ruthless and crazy and car wrecks, and I'm so lucky nobody ever died as a result of my. Uh, my bad behavior, you know, yeah. but this guy, you know, he went through what he had to go through and, and he's, he's really good now. He's, he's an awesome That's kid. Great. He's an awesome young man. Yeah. And then my daughter, my daughter grabbed it by the horns, man. She went to this thing called Noah's Ark, right? which um, I think it's a charity that since folded and they had a, a program in Malvern where they went to kind of a place where you, you camp, you sleep in a bunkhouse with all these other kids who've lost their parents mm. and or a loved one or something like that. And then on the third day, I went to pick her up, and um, all the kids had their parents' name written on a balloon, a helium balloon, and then they, and they let them all go at this at the same time, and they went all went off into the clouds, mm-hmm. except the ones with Jackie on it. Uh, Aaliyah let it go, and it went and it got stuck in a tree. <laughs> and I said, "Isn't that just like your mom?" Yeah. <laughs> And I said, tell her she can go now. And she goes, go on, mom, or something like that. And it kind of wiggled around a little bit. And oh. then it just, then it floated off, you know. Oh, wonderful. So she she grabbed it right away. Yeah. And the youngest, luckily, one of the things that Jackie got the two youngest into was uh, horse riding. Right. And so Quentin at that time was 11. And he'd been, he, they'd been horse riding since, uh, for five years. Mm. And my daughter, uh, as soon as you start to have to muck out the stables and do all the the gritty work and all that, she's like, eh, I don't care about riding horses anymore. But Quentin was way into it. And he had a a tough little uh, teacher, this woman named Sue, who was just really good with him. She was strict, but just very loving. Mm. And it was probably the most nurturing place that he could have been at the time because it was all all women that ran it. Right. So it's like, uh, you know... The female sort of energy, you know, taking care of him, but also mm-hmm. giving him guidance. And and he kept saying, "Hey, Dad, when are we gonna when are we gonna get a horse?" Yeah. I said, "Well, I got about thirty grand in the in the in the <laughs> bank. You know, why don't you come yeah. ask me then?" You know. And there was this old uh, working horse, like a uh, not an Irish draft or something, you know, one of the shaggy yeah, feet, yeah. Uh, named Jasper. And Jasper was 15 years old, and he'd just been ridden around in circles by all these screaming kids and stuff. And one day, Jasper decided to uh, rebel and never let anyone ride him again. Wow. And so no one could get on this horse. And he could open gates with his mouth, and he would open (laughs) gates and let other horses out into other fields and stuff like that. (laughs) He would crawl over the top of a horse box. He was was a real renegade, you know, proper traveler. So... uh, Quentin goes down in the field where Jasper is like the the owner had three or four other horses. So she's just like letting him graze in this field. Mm. He kind of looks like Eeyore, you know, (laughs) and Quentin goes down and starts talking to him. You know, he says, Jasper, you know, remember me? You know, like because that was the first horse he'd ever ridden. And then he just puts a little like a 
like a rope on it, starts leading it around, talking to him. Next thing you know, they go, he's he's bareback riding in the field. You know, tell him he's got to have a saddle on, like that. Yeah. And the lady that owned him says, look, she goes, you pay the livery on that horse and he can say it's his. Wow. And by the time he outgrew, like he, he was six foot three by the time he was 13. <laughs> wow. By the time he outgrew that horse, he was in competitions doing show jumping, dressage and cross country with that horse, man. You're kidding. No. Wow. And uh, Jasper turned into a, a real competitor, man. And then one day, you know, Quentin starts playing the drums. And um, he, I mean, all my kids are musical, but he starts playing the drums again in earnest with some friends in a band. Mm. And then he gets this cute little girlfriend and he says, Dad, he goes, I don't know if I want to do mm. this anymore. You know? And so I said, well, son, if you're really <laughs> sure. You know, and inside my head, I'm going, yes, yes. There's like a band going, da, 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 da. you know, Woo-hoo! what am I going to do with that 800 quid a month? You know, and so sold the sold the horse, sold the box and uh, the rest is mystery. You know, so that that really helped him cope with the whole deal. Yeah, they just need a, a focus, don't they? I think. What did your kids do? They are OK. But when they've had moments where they've lost direction, that's where things have gone a bit wrong for them, I guess. And like your second son, I think they both have been through stages of being really angry. But it's beginning to dissipate, I think. I think they're both beginning to go, OK, right, my mum isn't going to die, I don't think. Um, which, of course, was that that was their big fear because, of course, I was poorly after Phil. So Well but, done, you. Oh, well, do you know what, though? And and you'll probably understand this. I, I have a bit of a problem with people who call it, uh, who say that you've won the battle. Yeah. Because for people like Phil and like Jacqueline, you know, you just think, it, well, if it was a battle, they'd have won it. They, they, there was nobody that could have fought harder than them. Yeah. And it suggests that they didn't try hard enough. Yeah. And actually, they bloody well did. Yeah. They would never have left their kids. They they adored their families. So please don't call it a battle. It's not a battle. Yeah. It's it's luck. So it's lovely to kind of think for for my boys. It's wonderful to say, yep, still here and and still able to bring them up. But I I I would hate for anybody to say. Um, she won the battle, but her husband didn't, and nor did anyone else that died from cancer. Because actually, that's that's not true. Yeah. yeah, I guess you you just deal with it in whichever way that you can. But luckily for you, things have gone on a happier trajectory in the last few years. By the sounds of it, you met Izzy. Yes, I did. You know, and mm. we took our time, and and um, she's never tried to be a mom to the kids. No, you know, and she she never had kids herself, but she just wanted to be their friend. Yeah, and they've really taken to her, and she's That's awesome. Great. It's it's tough, you know, for you, you feel guilty when you or I did. Mm. I felt I felt oh, really really yeah. guilty uh, getting with somebody else. Mm. And also I felt guilty for being needy, mm. you know, when when my kids should have been the first priority, you know, maybe or, or whatever, you know. And, you know, people, people, uh, you know, everybody's got their own life to live. Mm. But what people don't realize is that it is actually possible to love more than one person simply because love is a, is an emotion that has no limit by definition. You know, you, you've got four kids, you could have had another 10 and it wouldn't have stopped you loving Taylor, the first one, as much as, you know what I'm saying. I do. It's a shame, actually, if people don't accept that life moves on, because what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to live the same life yeah. and, you know, wear, wear a, a black shirt for the rest of your life? And Well, some people do, you know, and, and um, I mean, there was a mechanic in my hometown and uh, he lost his wife. And after that, I used to see him just looking at the ground, you know, and I and I'd say, you know, come on, man, you know, it's one day at a time. And I think that's one of the things that recovery has given me, mm-hmm. you know, is to live 
every day, one day at a time, and to have and to have a higher power yeah. of your own understanding that you can turn your will and your life over to, you know. And that's another thing too, you know. It's like uh, I heard a really good thing last night is that self can't get away from self. No. So when people, you know, take something, you know, I don't know if you ever listened to Eckhart Tolle as well. He talks about the uh, like when you were born, you know, you weren't Eleanor, you know, until you you realized that that's what your parents were calling you, and then that became your name, and then yeah. you you realized your that was your house, you know, I'm Eleanor, and I live in that house, and these are my toys, and all this other stuff like that. But but really, you know, the essence of you is so much bigger mm. and vast than that, and also connected with so much other stuff. You know, mm. I feel really blessed that I had Jackie in my life, and now I've got Izzy in my yeah. life, and and uh, it's almost like people expect a happy ever after. After, don't they? And I think that when people like these dream weddings, because they think, right, well, that's our happy ever after. And actually, it isn't. That's when it all begins. And every chapter, every part of your life is is a chapter and these chapters overlap. And the chapter of your first marriage ended when Jacqueline died. But your life didn't end. Your chapter, did, you know, that there's, there's a new chapter and you have to kind of see yourself as you have to be open, I think, to new experiences and new lives. Because if you try and live that same life without her in it, you're only going to be miserable. I don't know if, if I, I haven't really retreated into um, being depressed or anything like that for any long period of time. I remember initially, I mean, it was it was the shock of it. You know, I can remember about three or four months of just something I'd never, ever uh, experienced in my life. There were moments where I would just have to say to myself, OK, I'm breathing in. I'm breathing mm-hmm. out. You know, yeah. what does this kid need? What does that kid need? What does that kid need? What does that kid need? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I do for work? You know, something like that. And just taking a moment to moment. And then after a while, things start happening and great people around you support you. Yeah. And then it just it starts a whole new chapter, like you said. Yeah, you, you start living each day just to get to the end of each day. And then after a while, you realize that you're looking ahead to three days and um, you might be looking ahead to the end of the week um, because I certainly felt that actually just waking up in the morning was so depressing. <laughs> Having to think, oh God, I've got another 18 hours of this yeah. shit. Where are we going to go? But, um, you know, eventually you do get to the end, don't you? I mean, I think about the people. I mean, the the only reason I ever ended up over here anyway is I had a a cousin who was a bass player that when I lived in California, he had called me up one night and he says, hey, come over to the East Coast and study the bass. And he was kind of like he took me out of this and, and it was while I was... Going pretty crazy in California. I was doing all kinds of nutty stuff. Mm. I mean, I was working and I was moving around and stuff. But once I got over and I started playing music, it gave me a whole new profession. Yeah. Which got me on that cruise ship, which got me over here mm. married to Jackie and, and created a whole new life for me. You know, so I, I th- my cousin's name was Tiny. Right. Was he six foot nine as well? Yeah, no, he was he was uh, three hundred and fifty pounds. He was about six foot two, but he was a <laughs> he's a big guy, you know. And and I can feel him there, you know. And it's just mm. like you know, sometimes if I'm thinking about what should I do for the kids or something, I'll say, well, what do you think, you know? Yeah. And I just leave that out as if Jackie's there responding, you know. Oh. And you know, who knows if if I'm getting messages or not, or or just I kind of remember the way that that she would kind of deal with things. It keeps it a lot simple. I, all I know is I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Kellogg's Frosties, they're great! You've been listening to Tales from the Tannoy with Eleanor Hamilton and Tom Clark Hill and with music from Beats Bakery. This podcast was produced by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media.